Hello, Great Minds. It's Tuesday, and I ask that you forgive me, as I must say this episode is pretty much entirely just for me. So, welcome to the show, everyone. As always, I'm your host, Mr. DGMH, otherwise known as Zach DeBacco, and today I am taking a selfish, maybe therapeutic episode to work through some grief. As my Patreon supporters and closest friends and fans, dare I say friends, know I lost one of my closest friends recently, my grandfather, Dominic Tobacco, a truly great mind. Now you might be saying, like he would, what the Christ, I thought we were covering Zumbi this week, Mr. DGMH. Well, I fucking pushed it, and what the Christ, like I said, was a common phrase of today's subject. Who the hell knows why, but we've all been saying it as much as possible over the past two weeks since his death. But grief is tough and complex. Actually, it fucking sucks. So I thought and talked and thought some more. How do I deal with this tremendous loss in my life? A drinking buddy, wise sage, friend, father, unexpectedly gone. Where can I find the space to say and think exactly what I want without anyone else having an opinion? Well, the answer is right fucking here. But my grandfather's life, as great and fun as it was, actually was also a great showcase of history. His was a story of a self-made man born of new immigrants. He grew up miserably poor, served in the U.S. Air Force, and he was in the end an entrepreneur of his own making. In a way, he was, to quote a former student of mine, the epitome of the American dream. Fortunately, the historian in me always listened. Those confabulated stories told by brother after brother and uncle after uncle, only rarely ever corroborated by some historical evidence or event, they always caught my ear. I listened, I learned, and I remembered. So who better to showcase on a show about great minds than the greatest mind I have ever known? And what better to drink than his drink of choice, an absolute and cranberry? Even if the bar didn't have a single drop of absolute vodka in it, that is what he ordered. So I say, eh, fuck it. Grab a bottle of vodka, pour some damp cranberry juice in it, and call it an absolute and cranberry, and have a drink as I find a way to write through some grief. And don't worry, I will be back with our next great mind, Zumbi, King of Palmares, next week. This week, however, we will raise a glass to a man that helped me become the great-ish mind I pretend to be, Dominic Debacco, otherwise known as Tadone. But first, it's some history for you, a reason to drink for me, it's the history of the great minds that made history come to be. Quote, if you're not the lead dog, the view is always the same. These were the words that my grandfather, who we, well, countless called Tadone, echoed to me constantly throughout my adolescence. What kind were, what kind supportive words? Hey, Zach, you have a choice. Lead or sniff a dog's ass. It's your call. But those words always stuck with me. And since then, I have always marched to the beat of my own strange fucking drum. And I will say Tadone was a wise and foolish man. Sometimes what he said made perfect sense, sometimes it made no fucking sense at all. So who was Dominic DiBacco? Well, he was my grandfather, but that is a grotesque oversimplification. Born February 20th, 1938, he was a child of the Great Depression, experiencing his childhood in the shadow of World War. Born of Grace and Paul DiBacco, both of whom were recent emigres to the U.S., he was born into utter poverty. And I will note right off the bat that 50% of this is oral history and potentially BS. The other 50% is actual-ish actual fact. Either way, he and his nine siblings had to sleep four or five to a bed, head to foot. My grandfather regularly told me that they would rush outside in the spring to eat bark off a fucking tree. Putting it simply, they were dirt poor and hungry. 
His father, Paul, who by the way called my grandfather Tony, no one knows why, but he did, was quite the character. Born in the 1890s, he immigrated to the United States in the first decades of the 20th century before quotas set in. Supposedly, and I have heard there were discharge papers stored away somewhere to prove it, he served under Benito Mussolini during his time as a believe a lieutenant in the First World War. He even was said to have gardened at a palace belonging to King Vittorio Emmanuel II. Could all this be true? Well, yes, the timeline does add up, but either way, we will keep that mystery alive for now. And when Paul gardened, it was said that he would keep a jug of homemade Prohibition-era wine at each end of his garden, so he could have a drink at each lap or turn. Honestly, he sounds like my kind of guy, but I never knew him. He died in the 1960s, shortly after my father's birth. His wife, Grace, was one of a kind, a true matriarch and family saint. She died when I was in 7th grade, and I was lucky to have known her. She had survived poverty, migration, rape, and worse, as she sought a better life in America, which in the end I think she got. She was a mother to 10 children, 3 girls and 7 boys, including my Tadone. She was Nuna, and she died at age 97. Their lives and my grandfather's life have quite a bit of history rooted in them, and since this is a history podcast, I figured we'd take a second to talk about that. You see, Grace and Paul were what historians and teachers call new immigrants. For most Americans, they just accept the fact that some peoples came before others. Depending on their communities, that could mean, like in my family's case, that the Germans and the English came first, then the Irish and the Scots-Irish, and finally, in very large numbers, the Italians, and even later, Poles and Hungarians. Of course, for there to be new immigrants, there also had to be old ones. So what is the difference? Well, when I taught in the classroom, and you might know this if you listen to what I'm teaching on the Patreon page, I answered that question plain and simple. Who, when, where, what, and why? That is, the difference between old and new immigrants was who came to this country, when they arrived on America's shores, where they settled, what they did for work, and why they left in the first place. Of course, there are similarities, but still, old immigrants were primarily from Northern and Western Europe, coming from areas like England, Scotland, Ireland, Scandinavia, Germany, and to a lesser degree, France, Spain, and Portugal. They arrived in the USA from around the early 1800s or earlier to around 1890. They came seeking work on homestead farms, gold mines, and even building railroads. The Transcontinental Railroad of Lincoln's day was built in part by the Irish, as well as African Americans exiting the South. By that logic and timeline, the Chinese should also be added to the list of old immigrants. Although I will say that their experience was fundamentally different from their European counterparts. I have read that most Chinese immigrants in this period came to work in hopes of returning home, working primarily in mines and on railroad construction. They faced the harshest conditions, lowest pay, and were really the first immigrant group to be targeted by xenophobic policies that culminated in the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. Most European immigrants in this period settled on farmland in the Midwest as homesteads offered easy access to land and opportunity, something that they lacked in Europe. Heck, Scandinavian logjammers were pretty popular too. They looked to escape famines, they longed for religious freedom. Potato famines, general food shortages, poverty, hate, and religious persecution drove or pushed Europeans to America's shores, where land was plenty and religious freedom was guaranteed, for the most part. And really that was true of new immigrants as well, pulled to this country's shores by opportunities of work, but now the work was a bit different. The new immigrants heralded from southern and eastern Europe and included Russians, Jews, Slavs, Hungarians, Poles, and of course Italians. I know I am oversimplifying this list here, but those were just some of the big ones, and they emigrated in a period around 1890 to close to 1920, when immigration ended almost entirely for reasons we will discuss later. It is during this time that my Tata and Nona came to America. 
But there was no bountiful farmland for Paul, instead only hard, unsafe work in factories, mills, and in his case personally, industrialized mines. Arriving through Ellis Island, America's East Coast Immigration Center, they traveled to the Pittsburgh area. Some would simply stay in New York, forming community hubs or ghettos like Little Italy, while others moved to areas where family members had found success. This sort of chain immigration was common, as success stories pulled families from Europe to America. My family settled in the Brady's Bend area, where my tutta found work in the local limestone mine, in a community almost entirely lived and worked by Italian immigrants during its early years. Of course, xenophobia kicked in as the government aimed to return to normalcy in the 20s. Irrational fears of socialist uprisings being brought to America by immigrants sparked the passage of two quota or immigration acts in 1921 and 24 that set up a system to all but halt new immigrants from coming to America. Shocker, the quotas still allowed for older immigrants to arrive in decent numbers. Interestingly, this brings up a conversation on whiteness, that is the idea that as new social groups came to America, unassimilated, even foreign, the older immigrant groups became more enmeshed, that is, white. The Irish, by the time of my grandfather's arrival, were little different from the English or Germans that came before them, at least when compared to the Italians. I will tell it to you like my grandfather always used to to me. Quote, when the Irish came to this country, everybody spit at them. But when we came to this country, it was the Irish that spit at us. Is it that simple? Maybe, maybe not. But that is how it was for him. He even regularly told tales of having to hide as men in white hoods marched through Catholic communities burning crosses. Today, these immigrant communities are virtually undistinguishable from one another, yet remnants of them do still exist in local social clubs like the Sons of Italy and Hungarian clubs. I even used to bartend at the SOI, which sits in the area where my grandfather spent much of his childhood, Blue Row. You see, my grandfather spent some of his childhood living in what's called a company town. His father spent many impoverished years working for the Michigan Limestone Company, which, unbeknownst to me, was a subsidiary of J.P. Morgan's U.S. Steel, that managed the mining of limestone in the Brady's Bend area. I was always shocked to hear his stories about the company store that his family had to go shop at, right next to where Tadone would later open one of his first beauty shops. Now, in case you don't know, company towns were about as predatory as present-day student loan companies, seeking out those in need, the ones who needed work, luring them with promises of prosperity, stability, and success. Work, housing, stores, a one-stop shop for everything you can need. Who would ever need to leave? A better question, however, is who ever could? Of course, the most famous of these, although they were quite common, was the Pullman Car Company and Pullman, Illinois. Unsurprisingly, I always teach this lesson using a political cartoon and a song. The cartoon shows a big fat George Pullman pressing his employees for every cent they have by raising rents, lowering wages, and increasing their debts. But debts to whom? Well, that brings us to the song, 16 Tons, Tennessee Ernie Ford. He puts it pretty clear. He loads 16 tons, and what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me, because I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. Do, 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 do. It's a great song. If you don't know it, go listen to it. It's fantastic. I could have sang it, but I didn't. But you see, company towns were unique. They didn't monopolize single trades or businesses like Rockefeller, nor cut out the middleman like Carnegie. No, they did something different. They stole a monopoly over one's life. From housing to food to wages, everything in the company town came from the company, was owed to the company, and controlled by, you guessed it, the company. And when you couldn't pay, then the worker found themselves in a form of debt peonage or debt slavery, which, if you can't tell by the name, was challenging to escape. Not saying that this was the case for my grandfather, but society and the company sure kept him and his family as poor as humanly possible. Eventually, things did get a little better as my massive horde of relatives moved to a different part of town. 
Don't get me wrong, they were still poor as shit, but they were a little better off, I suppose. As for the rest of my Tadone's tale, well, it reads like a wild and endless adventure. In his late teens, he joined the U.S. Air Force in the years after the Korean War. He was shocked by the glamorous reality of his new life, a bed for himself, clean clothes, and three hot meals a day. He talked of it as though he had entered a parallel universe, an unexpected paradise. And boy, did he have some fucking fun. I can't really sit here and talk about all those stories that he told, nor would I really want you to know all of them, but it is an interesting part of Tadone's story. So I will say this. During his time in the military, my grandfather was young, good-looking, and single most of the time. He spent the majority of his time in the U.S. Air Force, stationed in Arizona and later Okinawa. Much of his time overseas was spent in the air, not flying planes, but I believe it had something to do with radio. And his time on the ground sounded like one big party between typhoons. Yes, his was a story filled with beautiful women and lots of antibiotics. I will let you fill in the blanks. During his service, most of his money went back to his family, so when he left the Air Force, he was broke. He needed a job and one day decided to ride with his brother Ralph to beauty school. And just like that, he became a beautician. And it actually kind of was just that simple. Opening his first shop in his hometown, he eventually married my wonderful grandmother, Yvonne, and they had their only son, Dominic Tobacco Jr., in the 1960s. By the 1970s, he had moved his business to Slippery Rock, Pennsylvania, where he also became a property owner, landlord, and entrepreneur. By the late 80s and early 90s, he was doing well enough to invest in a new building down the street that would house three separate businesses, including his own new beauty shop and 18 apartments above it. Any Slippery Rock alum or resident knows the building I'm talking about here, or at least you're about to, as it is a very tall, large building across from campus that has been home to the town's subway shop for decades. There is something truly special knowing that when I enter Slippery Rock, where my family went to school, where I worked as a bartender for years, and where I lived with Mrs. DGMH for more than five years, that the first thing I see is his building. A building he literally built himself, with some family help, because he didn't have the money to pay for all the builders. He sold that building around 2000 when he and my grandmother retired. The family still owns the building where his first beauty shop in Slippery Rock resided. But much of his legacy, Pine Run, the beauty spot, and the subway building, as I call them, these buildings were sold off in the end to fund his retirement. To me, however, these places are so much more than buildings. One was the place where Tadone cut my hair for 20 years. Another was the place where my childhood nights were spent watching him cut hair. Pine Run was a place for family reunions, birthday parties, and 4th of July campouts, and the very place where Tadone first taught me how to drive. And another of his properties was the very house I grew up in. They were the memories I have of him, and they are his legacy. Well, that's it. Some history for you, some closure for me. There was no approval for this, no permission sought, nor does it matter if anyone listens to it or even likes this episode. You got some history, and I guess I got whatever I needed, too. My grandfather was more of an act-first, fuck-forgiveness-later kind of person. He took risks, and it always paid off. I don't know if this will reignite my desire to be witty, funny, or crude, but his story is one I've always wanted to tell, and now that this great mind is gone, his story deserves to be told. And again I say, who better to fucking tell it than me? In the end, I was lucky. I got one last great night with a best friend. One of the last things he said to me as I poured his third glass of wine for the evening was, quote, stop filling it half full. I am sick of asking for more wine. Sure, I got a nasty look for it, but I went ahead and filled up his wine glass anyways. After that, he went upstairs, played the hits on the piano one final time, and then we all went home. Unknowingly, the next day we all had a chance to say goodbye. And then that was it. Another great mind gone. To some, he was Nicky. To others, he was Uncle Nick. To one, he was Dad. To his loving wife, he was Nick. He was a neighbor and a friend, a soldier and a beautician. And to some, he was probably a bit of a pain in the ass. He is a perfect reminder to take risks and try for success in unexpected places, and to always have a fucking good time. 
Dominic DeBacco was a force in his community, but to me and so many others, family and friend alike, he was simply to Don, and you can't really ask for more than that. And as he would say, salut. <laughs>